Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we are continuing our uh, episode on the Andrews Raid, also known as the Great Locomotive Chase, which is a train chase, which is so exciting that it needed to be in two parts. So to recap about where we are in the story right now, James Andrews and 22 men have commandeered a northbound train in Big Shanty, Georgia, which is now Kennesaw. Its conductor, William Fuller, has started chasing them on foot, along with Anthony Murphy, who was a foreman with the railroad, who was on his way to Alatoona to inspect some machinery, and E. Jefferson Kane, who was the train's engineer. Uh, That train was pulled by a locomotive called the General. Fuller remembered the men from when they embarked on the train in Marietta, and at that point he had suspected that they might be Confederate soldiers who were deserting. He thought they'd run the general until it ran out of steam and then abandon it. This was actually a pretty logical conclusion, given that there was a it was a huge Confederate encampment right there, like right by the train depot. Yeah. So aboard the train, just outside of Big Shanty, the train very briefly and terrifyingly slowed down, and it looked like all was going to be lost because of some kind of mechanical problem. But the crew realized that a damper had been left open, so they closed it again, they restoked the fire, and then they were back on their way. And on their approach to Ackworth, Georgia, Andrews had the men cut the telegraph lines using a saw that they found. They also delayed a little so they could return to the train's normal schedule and arouse less suspicion at the stations up the line. He did, however, have an excuse ready for why the train was not making scheduled stops. He said the train was tasked with carrying munitions and supplies bound for General P.G.T. Beauregard's army. About two and a half miles later, the raiders on the train approached Moon Station, and they found a a section crew at work on the track. The crew was immediately suspicious of them. Uh, The train was ahead of schedule still. And none of the people on the engine were familiar to them. They normally would have known the engineer and the conductor and the other people working on the train. Even so, one of the raiders asked one of the workers for a pry bar, and he handed it over to him. This wound up being the only tool they had with which to try to destroy the train tracks. Now, this is simultaneously dumb, because the whole point of this endeavor was to destroy train tracks, and they had not brought any tools with which to do so. And it was also necessary because they really could not travel discreetly on foot for many miles while carrying many implements of of train destruction. I like how they carefully walked through every piece of the plan and they just left this kind of to chance. Like, we hope we find a crowbar. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) We talked in the previous episode about how they stayed at this hotel that was owned by a guy who was also acting as a union spy. That's entirely circumstantial. And to me, one of the arguments against maybe that having been a deliberate uh, connection is that that guy would have been a good person to pack up some things meant to destroy train tracks and, you know, label them as cargo and get them aboard the train. But that did not happen. So instead, they had this one pry bar. So back to the men on foot, uh, Fuller being, as we said in the last episode, in extremely good physical shape, pulled ahead of the other two men who were chasing the train. And when he found the crew at Moon Station, they told him the general had gone by just about 30 minutes earlier. Fuller got a pole car, and it rolled along the tracks while being 
pulled like a gondola, and he doubled back for the other two men, and then he resumed his pursuit. His goal was to make it to Cooper's Ironworks, where he knew he'd find an old but reliable engine, which was known as the Yona, which he could then commandeer for this chase. Although the raiders did stick pretty closely to the posted schedule for the train, they didn't stop at any more of the stations if they could help it. What they would do is destroy the, tele- uh, the telegraph wire either as they got close to the station or after they had passed it so that they couldn't call for help once they realized something was wrong. Eventually, instead of cutting the wires, they would just tie it to the back of the train and yank it down behind them as they went. Otherwise, they just went on past platforms full of confused passengers without stopping. Uh, they also marked the train with a red flag, and that was a signal that danger was present or that there was another train following behind them, and they did this as an attempt to deflect suspicion. Meanwhile, aboard the pole car, uh, when Fuller and team got to a section of track that had been blocked with cross ties next to a pulled down telegraph wire, he realized that the men he was dealing with and chasing were not merely deserters. Yeah, this is when he started, in addition to trying to catch them, trying to call for help every time he got to a station. Things had gotten off to a relatively auspicious start for the Raiders, but they began to fall apart pretty quickly after getting farther away from Big Shanty. When Andrews crossed the Etowah River, he made two kind of questionable decisions. One was that he and the crew saw the Yona, which at this point, Fuller was already planning to get and use. Um, Andrews had no way of knowing this, but still, they, he definitely knew that this train was something that could be used to come after them. Um, the Yona was an older engine that had been retired, and it was being rented for private use. So they, number one, did not destroy or disable that engine. And then number two, they also did not destroy the bridge that the Yona would have had to cross to get into pursuit of them. So when Fuller and his men arrived, just as they had planned, they commandeered the Yona and they took up their pursuit. A little farther north in Kingston, Georgia, there was a fork in the track, and that connected to a spur out to Rome, Georgia. Since he'd studied the train schedule, Andrews knew ahead of time that he was going to need to stop here to let a southbound train pass to clear the tracks before he could go north again. But there were actually three southbound trains on the track. Two of them were not on schedule. Uh, They were driven by panic in Chattanooga thanks to the battle in Alabama. And Andrews wound up being delayed by more than an hour as all of these trains cleared. Yeah, basically everybody in Chattanooga was like, well, the Yankees are coming. Gotta get out of here. Get out of here. (laughs) We got to go. (laughs) So, yeah, he the longer he sat there the more people became suspicious. Like, something was clearly not right. He was not the conductor who was supposed to be on there. The engineer was not the engineer everyone knew already. They started, uh, the people at the station started asking questions that Andrews really couldn't easily answer. So when these three southbound trains were finally clear of the station, the man tending the switch refused to switch the track to let the general get through. So Andrews took the key and did it himself, which pretty much made it obvious to everyone that he was up to no good. Yeah, at that point, your cover is blown, I think. Uh, Well, and a a lot of their decisions that seem kind of questionable were partially or wholly motivated by not blowing their cover. Yeah, but at this point, I mean, they have really no option but to go for broke. So... 
Andrews and his team are finally on their way. But by this point, Fuller was just mere minutes behind because, as we mentioned, he had commandeered the Yona and he was giving chase. And the three trains that Andrews had to wait for didn't cause him nearly so much of a problem. Fuller and his team were well known to the other conductors, and he was able to quickly explain the situation and get everyone that he encountered to help. And rather than waiting, he abandoned the Yona and picked up the William R. Smith, which was on the other side of the waiting trains. And as a bonus, it was also a much faster engine. Plus, uh, there was some nearby militia and they joined Fuller's effort. Aboard the William R. Smith, uh, Fuller and his men closed the gap on the general and they were doing really well until they got to a missing piece of track outside of Kingston, which Andrew's men had actually managed to finally pry up. They had to abandon the engine and continue again for a while on foot. And now let's jump back on the train tracks and get to the action. So outside of Adairsville, Andrews and company met the southbound Texas, which was an engine that was very similar to the General, and it was pulling a very long train. Andrews talked the Texas into yielding on a siding so that they could pass, using his excuse that his train was tasked with carrying vital war supplies. As we alluded to earlier, they could not have used this story if they had also damaged the Texas. So knowing they were taking a risk, they let it be, and they continued on. Uh, They let the Texas continue on southward as the general continued north. And as you may have predicted, this turned out to be their undoing. So Fuller and his team on foot, again, Take that marathon. Like, I think he's run far longer than uh, several marathons at this point. (laughs) Encountered the Texas as it was traveling south. And they flagged it down. They commandeered it. They uncoupled the freight and passenger cars. And then because it was facing south, they actually ran it up the track backwards as fast as it could go. At this point, they're they're about halfway to Chattanooga. And this is another way where you go, of course, this is a Buster Keaton movie. It's kind of backwards. Ran the Texas. <laughs> they ran the Texas backwards as fast as they could for pretty much the entire rest of the chase. And they observed none of the safety precautions that were meant to prevent head on collisions between trains at this point. Uh, they did not have time for any of that. So they basically just blew the train's whistle almost nonstop while going as fast as they could backwards on a train engine that was facing south while they were going north. And so this is the part of the chase that's super exciting if you're watching a movie, but uh, when you're doing a podcast, it is not so exciting because all we can keep saying is that they kept running the train backwards as fast as possible, uh, which is exciting, but it goes on for a while that way. Uh, Andrew's men also pushed the general as fast as they could, too, and they abandoned their plans to burn bridges and tear up the track because the Texas was just way too hot on their heels for them to have time to stop and do those things. Even if they'd had more time by this point, it had also been raining for days and it was still raining and everything was waterlogged. So not really good conditions for setting fire to things. One of the biggest bits of excitement in this stretch of the chase is a story of the Yankees lighting a boxcar on fire and leaving it either on the tracks or in a covered bridge. Um, This Sadly, is an embellishment that was added later. (laughs) It does appear in both movie versions of this story, though. Uh, But historically, it just does not pan out uh, based on the fact that they started with three cars um, that it just the the numbers don't add up. They they did not set a 
boxcar on fire, I am sad to tell you. It does sound good. I could see where no scriptwriter would leave that out. Uh, what the men aboard the General did do was uncouple each of the last two boxcars, one at a time, to send down the track toward the Texas. And they were hoping that this would cause a crash. But the Texas just reduced its speed, caught the car, coupled with it, because remember, it is facing backwards, and pushed it off at the next siding. So this is kind of like a perfect storm of all of these crazy things happened in such a way that were completely beneficial to Fuller. Yeah, it turned out to completely be an asset that they were backwards (laughs) instead of a liability. Um, Other than this boxcar trick... The only damage the Raiders really had time to do at this point was throwing railroad ties onto the track. So they had collected all these railroad ties that they were going to use as fuel to set things on fire. Um, they bashed out the back of the boxcar because there's no door or window or anything back there. Um, and they just started throwing railroad ties out of the back of it. Um, this did not work. All that well, because number one, Fuller's men could just move them. And then number two, they just bounced all over the place. They would bounce off of the tracks more often than they would stay there. Um, on the rare occasion, they took a pause to try to pry up some of the track or destroy it. They just did not have enough time to do enough of a job to uh, slow down the Texas at all. And additionally, Fuller, uh, very smartly, also collected a telegraph operator at one of the stations that they passed. He composed a message to Chattanooga to warn them about what was happening, and he dropped the operator in this message off at the next stop with the hope that he would be able to send this message before the men aboard the General cut the wire farther up the line. As a side note, this actually worked, but Fuller had no way of knowing that it worked because he didn't have time to wait for the conductor to come back. Um... With the Texas closing in and their supply of firewood dwindling, it became really clear that Andrew's plan was on the verge of absolute total failure. And they did not even know that a second train, which was carrying 10 Confederate infantrymen and their commander, had also joined the pursuit behind the backwards-running Texas. Union soldiers on board the General started talking about how maybe they should stop the train and make a stand. But Andrews really didn't have any way of knowing how many Confederate soldiers were aboard the Texas, and he thought it might be a lot, so he decided they should continue on. They did make some brief stops for firewood and water so that they could keep the engine going, but they could never spend enough time uh, at any of their stops to get a full load. And as their supplies wound down, they resorted to burning paper, hats, clothes, and even Andrew's saddlebags. Basically, anything that they could part with and that would catch fire was going in to keep the engine running. And the train went slower and slower and slower. Until finally, out of fuel entirely, the general stopped. Two miles north of Ringgold, Georgia which is 18 or so miles south of Chattanooga, Tennessee. So it had traveled 87 miles in seven hours. And under normal circumstances, the trip all the way from Atlanta to Chattanooga was at least a 12-hour journey. So these trains had, at various points, been traveling at amazing speeds, considering the time. Like, having a train go 60 miles an hour today, not a big deal. (laughs) Having a train go 60 miles an hour over poor quality track during the Civil War... Astounding. Uh, and the raiders abandoned the engine and they scattered into the woods. Fuller, after making sure that the general was okay, pursued them along with the Confederate soldiers and others who had joined the chase along the way. I love that he checked on the train first. 
I, I do too. In Ringgold, it was muster day. That meant that the town was full of families and of young men hoping to enlist in the Confederate Army. So when word spread that a bunch of Union spies had escaped into the woods in the area, uh, they all joined the search in earnest. And all of the raiders, including the ones who missed the train in Marietta, were captured. On those last two, as a note, it quickly became obvious that these two strangers who seemed to have nothing to do in Marietta had something to do with the train that was stolen just up the track in Big Shanty. So all of the men were captured. Yeah, there were a couple of men who almost managed to make a clean getaway, but in one way or another, somebody caught on to the fact that they were not who they said they were. And uh, they all wound up, if they were captured near Ringgold, on a train bound to Atlanta to go to prison, which was pulled by the general. So even though he was a civilian, Andrews was court-martialed, and he was sentenced to death as a spy on May 31st, with his execution scheduled for a week later. And the night after that, he and another inmate actually escaped from prison, although they were captured again. Consequently, when Andrews went to the gallows on June 7th, 1862, the shackles around his ankles were secured with rivets. His hanging was rather gruesome, even as hangings go. He was a very tall man, as we said in the previous episode. And so in addition to him being too tall, the rope was too long, which meant that his death was slow and agonizing and did not occur until someone literally scooped the dirt out from under his feet so that they would not touch the ground. His fiancée, Elizabeth Layton, died less than two years later, and her family was quite insistent that she had died of a broken heart. Seven others of the Raiders were also hanged on June 18th, and that immediately followed their convictions because the Confederate Army did not want to risk another escape attempt by putting off the execution for a later date. In this case, the ropes for two of the raiders, William Campbell and Samuel Slavens, broke, and they had to be hanged all over again. The rest of the raiders, who at this point either had not been tried or had not been sentenced, wound up in prison for a while, and they started writing to Jefferson Davis and other important people uh, to ask for clemency. However, uh, because there's never uh, uh, an end to twists and turns and excitement in this story. And this is why it's two episodes long. Right? Ten of the men actually busted out on October 16th of 1862. They took the keys from a guard and made their escape. And then they paired up uh, and they scattered in pairs of two. Two of the men were caught within a day. Six of them actually found their way northward into Union territory over land. Two made it to Corinth, Mississippi on November 18th. And on the same day, two more made it to Lebanon, Kentucky. Two more got to Somerset, Kentucky on December 2nd. And many of these men uh, went on to write accounts about the raid and their escapes, which are, of course, full of danger and hardship and some extreme embellishments. Although the story really doesn't need a lot of extreme embellishments to be kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, especially when you consider that they all spent more than a month in enemy territory, mostly on foot, trying to get home and were escaped prisoners of war. As if that were not already exciting enough, Alf Wilson and Mark Wood did a completely non-intuitive thing in their escape attempt, and they went south along the Chattahoochee River. And they continued to follow rivers south until they got to the Gulf Coast of Florida, Then they managed to find a boat, and they rowed it out into the Gulf of Mexico to the USS Somerset, 
which the union was using as part of a blockade on November the 7th. That's what we call the hard way. (laughs) (laughs) It was the hard way, but they got to the union faster than anyone else. That's just... Uh, The remaining six raiders that were still in jail were moved from Fulton County Jail in Atlanta to Libby Prison in Richmond in 1862. And from there, they were moved to Castle Thunder, which was a wartime prison in Richmond. And they stayed there until March 17th of 1863, when an officer came in and gave a call for anyone who wanted to go to the United States. The Raiders went with about 300 other prisoners as part of an exchange, and they all arrived in Washington on Thursday, March 19th. So in Washington, D.C., they gave an account of the raid to the advocate general of the army, who was Joseph M. Holt. And he had been tasked with investigating this raid that they had all kind of heard a little about. I mean, it had been headline news in all of the newspapers everywhere, uh, but they didn't really know what had happened. So the advocate general made a note of their bravery in his report. From there, the raiders also appeared before the secretary of war, Edwin McMaster Stanton, who presented each of them with medals of honor. This made Private Jacob Parrott, Sergeant Elu Mason, Corporal William Pettinger, Corporal William Reddick, Private William Bensinger, and Private Robert Buffum the first to receive the Medal of Honor in the United States. So a note on the Medal of Honor, uh, it was conceived by Lieutenant Colonel Edward Davis Townsend, who was looking for ways to bolster troop morale as the war wore on. Uh, it was to recognize extraordinary courage and inspire men in their service. Abraham Lincoln signed a bill creating the Naval Medal of Valor in 1861 and another creating the Army Medal of Honor in 1862. These were the first official military awards in the United States. These bills originally applied just to the Civil War, but Congress amended the laws in 1863 so they would apply outside of the context of the Civil War. And the amendments also made it so that the medals could be given retroactively all the way back to the beginning of the Civil War, and they could be given to commissioned officers. So to kind of recap on the timeline, even though these laws had been passed in 1861 and 1862, by 1863, when the Raiders made it to Washington, D.C., none had actually been awarded yet until they were awarded to the Raiders. And those six uh, recipients who were the first to receive these awards that were from Andrew's raid were also each given $100 and they were ordered to be reimbursed for expenses and the value of anything that had been confiscated from them. When they said they wished to return to the army, they were also all given promotions and they were invited to meet the president, which they did on March 25th of 1863. The raiders who had escaped and the ones who were executed were mostly also given medals of honor as well. Um, There was an exception, for some reason, of George Wilson and Perry Shadrach. It's not completely clear why everyone else got medals and they did not. The civilians, James Andrews and William Campbell, were not eligible for the Medal of Honor because they were civilians. Um, One of the two men who got pressed into Confederate service at the very, very beginning of the story also uh, did not receive a Medal of Honor. And it's I'm not quite clear on why the three... uh, who were in the military and did not get a medal, why they did not get a medal. 
And this story actually became deeply important to both the North and the South. In the North, the men were characterized as daring, cunning heroes in spite of their failure. They had worked their way deep into enemy territory, and they had tried to execute an ingenious idea. And you can blame weather and bad luck for it not being quite as successful as they hoped. And to the South, Fuller and the men who joined him were determined heroes for thwarting the Northern action. Even though he was a civilian, James J. Andrews' body was moved to the National Military Cemetery in Chattanooga in 1887, and it lies there next to the bodies of seven of the other raiders. The general uh, was actually damaged during Sherman's Atlanta campaign, and it's not completely clear whether it was damaged by Confederates to keep it from falling into Union hands or by the Union just in an effort to damage uh, the Confederate forces. It was repaired after the war, however. Yeah, I found sources that said the complete opposite on who damaged the general. Um, Today, the Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History is where the general lives. Uh, This was pretty much built for that purpose in 1972, and it's affiliated with the Smithsonian Institution. This, however, followed an extremely long kind of custody battle between Tennessee and Georgia uh, about who should have the general. That actually went all the way to the Supreme Court which declined to hear the case, and that let stand a lower court's ruling that the railroad could do whatever it wanted with the train, and it wound up belonging to Georgia. Uh, If you live in Georgia or Tennessee, it may not surprise you, as the two states have a number of rivalries. (laughs) Uh, The Texas uh, is in the Atlanta Cyclorama and Civil War Museum, which, uh, isn't that the Cyclorama moving at some point in the not-too-distant future, so presumably the Texas will as well? I think so, but uh, I, when as I was confirming, because the places that I had found that said where all these trains are were a couple years old, and I was trying to confirm that everything was where it says it is, uh, and I was like, why is the Cyclorama website down? That would be why. <laughs> yeah, I think they're doing a whole move and uh, renovation plan with it. Huh. Well, that makes sense then. So, Buster Keaton's The General was a huge box office flop when it came out. It was critically panned. Its budget was one of the biggest budgets of the silent film era. But today it has become a classic. It's number 18 on the American Film Institute's 10th anniversary edition of 100 Years, 100 Movies. Um, They wanted to use the actual general locomotive in the movie. But when the people who owned it at the time found out that it was a comedy, they said no. Um, I watched this movie over the weekend. It is delightful. <laughs> if you have an opportunity, I recommend it. And the Disney movie that was made in the 50s is a drama, and it's more or less accurate in terms of the general idea and the stops along the line. But, of course, it is a movie made to thrill audiences, so it is embellished. Uh, and as it's a 50s-era movie about the Civil War, there are some parts of it that are a little uncomfortable by today's standards. For sure. Particularly when they sing, I wish I was in Dixie. And other parts too. Do you have some listener mail for us after this thrilling ride? So, uh, before I get into the listener mail, this is one of the ideas that came for a call for happier history stories. I'm so glad someone suggested it. Me too. As, as soon as I, I was like, well, that sounds like an awesomely good time to talk about 
uh, as kind of a breather from some of the dark and dour things that we have had on the podcast lately. I will confess that I'm a little, I'm still a little bit fixated on Fuller's running. <laughs> I'm like, did anybody clock how far he actually ran and how fast? Because that's the kind of running nerdery I would enjoy. I think his running, uh, I would probably put it into the, more the 10K range than the marathon range. Because whenever they could get uh, a hand car or a pole car or some other conveyance, yeah, uh, they did that mostly because it was faster than yeah. running. I'm still impressed. It's still, yes. It is still extremely impressive, especially because he was dressed in a classic conductor's uniform at the time. <laughs> Okay, our listener mail is from Rob. Rob says, hi, Tracy and Holly. I just wanted to send you a letter to say thank you for the wonderful work you do with Stuff You Missed. I came across your podcast when I decided to take a break from the numerous pro wrestling podcasts I've been listening to. Please don't hold that against me. Uh, I'm going to pause here and say pretty much our point of view is like what you like. So yeah. we're not going to judge. Um, I wanted to see if anyone had any information on a favorite topic of mine, Rapa Nui, Easter Island. That's when I found the massive bank of podcasts from Stuff You Missed. I was almost as excited as you guys were when doing your cheese podcast. I've spent the last two weeks going through episode after episode while driving, doing chores, or just working out. It's been so wonderful to listen to you and your past hosts talk about just wonderful moments in time and listening or and learning so much that I can pass along to my middle school students. A question for you and a possible suggestion for future casts. My students always look for, quote, the one true answer or what really happened when we study history. But as we find out, there is never one answer. There are theories, beliefs, and hunches. 99% of the time, we'll probably never know the, quote, truth, which is hard for my kids and many adults to accept. How do you come to grips with this realization? How has this caused challenges for you when doing your podcast? Um, and then he gives some other suggestions, one of which is the Antikythera mechanism, which, uh, so Rob, just so you know, we have that one already. Uh, yes, I still love that one. Yeah. That was so fun uh, to we research. Have a, we have a whole, a whole archive now at our website. So you can go, um, and find it there. Uh, and then he says, thank you and keep up the fantastic work. So, uh, to answer the question about the, like, knowing what the truth is or what really happened, um, that's actually been one of the motivators of this podcast for me, uh, because I feel like a lot of my history classes in school presented things as though that was the one true answer. Um, or sometimes I had one teacher in particular, it drove me kind of crazy. She would throw out the sort of bombshell of an idea, like, why do you think there is prejudice against such and such group of people? And she would act as though... There was an answer to this question that was the right answer, but then she wouldn't tell us what the right answer was. And it was deeply frustrating to me. I was like, but if there's an answer, why did you tell us? (laughs) She may have just wanted to get you thinking, but she did it in a way that was probably more frustrating than, uh, you know, igniting of your imaginations and your thought processes. Yeah. So really when it comes to the podcast, number one, I think figuring out, uh, what story we have not already been told is sort of a, a, a long time motivator of the podcast. Um, but then number two, reading things of multiple perspectives and putting my own gut response aside and actually listening, uh, is a big part of how I, 
I work with that. Like I, I see a behavior sometimes that where we will we will put up a link to an episode or a link to something interesting, and a lot of people will just immediately shut it down because they already know that and that they're angry that what we have said is not what they already know. And I just want to go, okay, just stop responding for a minute and listen to what is being said. Like actually listen to it. Then you can figure out what you think about that or how you respond to it. Don't start by responding to it before you have actually listened. Yeah. I mean, for my part, I am one of those people that I am uh, not ever really comfortable speaking in absolutes. I never really have been. Uh, and I don't know if that's just because it was always imparted to me as a kid. Like, hey, there's rarely one finite, simple way to explain anything, whether it's, you know, something like history or, you know, uh, will this person be here? Well, they're going to try, but, you know, any number of things could befall them on the way. Kind of simple. So for me, it's actually more comfortable to not look for the one answer. It kind of keeps it open where you can, as Tracy said, listen and take in all of the different sources and all of the different versions. You hear that saying of there, there are three truths, your truth, my truth, and the one in the middle that's probably closer to real. There are variations on that saying, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you kind of do pattern recognition and you f- you look at all of the different accounts of a thing that happened and kind of weigh where those accounts came from. And and it's kind of like painting a picture, except with facts. And for me, that's actually the more exciting part of it. Yeah. And I encourage everyone to think critically about stuff that they read and hear and just like listen <laughs> first <laughs> before you start with your critical analysis of the thing. Uh because you're not really starting from a, a, a critical point if you are having gut reaction first that you just go with rather than like actually absorbing some information to think about first. So that is how I feel about all that and how Holly has just expressed that she feels about all that. Thank you again, Rob, for writing to us. If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. We have a brand new store full of t-shirts and cell phone cases and all kinds of other delightful stuff. It is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. And if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website. Put the word trains in the search bar. You will find how trains work. Or you can come to our website and find show notes and an archive of every episode we have ever done. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>